The Lord has been bringing us on this beautiful journey through the book of John. Amen. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I love, I just love John's heart. You know, as I think about this and we slow down a little bit and we chew on the meat of the word and not just rush through the books. We don't do that anyway. But just really enjoying the meat that God has put before us and the spirit of God. Drawing our attention to the most important thing. That there's nothing in this physical realm, this temporal realm here on earth that could ever sustain or fulfill us like the spiritual birth that Jesus Christ gives us. It's not even close. It's not even a competition. And John brings that out so beautifully as he did in chapter 3 through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be moving into this next section in chapter 4 where... And still going through the signs. Remember, there's seven signs. We've already been through one of the seven. We maybe refer to them as miracles, but they're also recorded as signs. But in chapter 4, it's very, um, it's lovely, if I can say it that way, because there are multiple things going on. It, it's not just a passage that you take and go, okay, many of you heard about the woman at the well and, you know, going through Samaria and Jesus meets her and he's sitting there. It's around noontime, one of the hottest parts of the day. He had just traveled three days to get there. Okay. This is not a short journey. And he's sitting there and you think how parched he must be, how thirsty the disciples go off to get food. He's sitting there. And just as God's plan and timing is perfect, he is going to have a well right next to him, but he won't partake of the well. The well is believed to be scholars and, and those that have gone back and studied this believe it's about 70 feet deep. Uh, he won't go and get a drink. No, he's waiting for someone very special. But this woman doesn't think she's special. This woman at this point really thinks she's probably an accident. Her whole life has been a mess. She's been married multiple times, five to be specific. Every time it's gone poorly. She's been used by men. She's been thrown away. She now doesn't even think she needs marriage because she's not worthy. She, at this point, she's just willing to shack up with a guy just to even have some type of companionship or home because she doesn't think she matters anymore. She doesn't, she doesn't know where she fits in. And, and yet to God, this woman is the apple of his eye. And he's willing to, you know, he's going to go to the cross. He's willing to do whatever it takes at that moment. And he's going to long for her to come, for her to hear this message of good news. And I can just imagine because this well would have been at least a mile and a half to a mile. Um, if you've ever been to Israel, it, I've tracked, it's about a mile and a half outside of the city of what would have been Samaria to the, where the well would be. Normally that was all done in the morning. You'd go get water first thing in the morning where the other woman would go out. She didn't even feel comfortable around other women because they were mocking her, jeering her, and belittling her so that she would go out at the hottest time of day when nobody else would go at that time so that she wouldn't have to interact with others because she just was broken. And here she goes out, and, and Jesus, he's sitting there, and he's waiting, and he's watching her make this mile-and-a-half journey. It's not like he, she just comes up behind him, and he goes, Oh, hi, I didn't know you were there. No, he traveled three days for one hour, maybe 20 minutes, as he's watching this woman approach, knowing that she needs a spiritual birth. And he can't wait to tell her how he loves her, how God his father loves her, and how she has never been a mistake. And God doesn't judge us by the things that we have done, but who we become in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. Father, we just bow our head before you. You are a good and gracious God. Lord, to think and see what you'll do for one of the 99, Lord. Lord, you've done that for us. Each one of us is one of the 99 in here. At one time or another, you came to us and reached our hearts. Whether we were walking wayward, whether we were growing up in a good Christian home, Lord, you presented yourself to us and we received you as Lord and Savior. God, we know there are some that have not done that here this morning. Lord, I pray that your word will speak mightily to them, that they will see that, Lord, it's not about who they are and how worthy they are, but it's how worthy you are, Jesus. It's who you are. And what you've done so that every single human can come to you. 
and sup of the living water so that we will never thirst again for all of eternity. Jesus, we desire and pray for those that have not received or been born again that spiritual birth, that they would receive it today. Today would be the day of salvation, Lord Jesus. We pray you anoint your word. We pray, Lord, if there's some of us that have been beat up by the world this last week or months or years or, Lord, since our existence on earth, God, I pray today would be the day where you strip all of that away. Lord, and they see you and you see them in such perfect unity that none of the things of this earth will even last or pale in comparison to the joy of knowing that you, Jesus Christ, are our God and we are madly in love with you. So, Lord, we pray, anoint your word here this morning, bless and uh, create fertile soil in our hearts that we would hear what the Spirit has to say. We pray all this in your mighty and holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 4 here, as I, as I mentioned, there's a lot going on. There's at least three different four, three maybe four sections, if I can say it that way, as we'll read this, that there's different things going on. It's not just written to the religious leaders. It's not just written to the disciples. It's not just written for this woman. It's not just written for the town of Samaria. It's not just written for, you know, you and I today. It's a compilation of all of those things in one beautiful chapter and passage that only the Lord could do that, where he could touch everyone through one message of hope and good news. Let's read together in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Please notice it says needed. Underline that in your Bible. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And I think we can all easily say yes. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's a lot going on in this passage. As I mentioned earlier in my introduction, so many different things intersecting, going different direction, parallel conversations, and yet one God and one spirit. If you'll turn back to chapter 4, verse 1, you'll notice it says, therefore. Last we left off, as we talked about last week, is uh, Jesus was going to go and baptize. Um, there was a dispute that arose between John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, um, and those of uh, the Jews that were describing or, or disputing about Jewish purification. They had gotten to a fight, and basically um, the idea here is that John answered and spoke to them in a way that says that I must, in, sorry, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. He understood the order of operations. And so he says that he is above all. And it said in verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. It's from this understanding that God then writes, Therefore. It's, 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 that, it's that sort of foundational theology and understanding that apart from Christ, there is no heaven for a human apart from Jesus Christ. No, instead, what awaits that individual is the wrath of God. So when he says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, what we see here is, at this point, the religious leaders began to kind of start trouble, almost a competition. They were getting into uh, sectisms, S-E-C-T, right-ism. Um, and so what they're doing is they're, they're trying to create strife. They're trying to stir up trouble within the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist. And they know exactly what they're doing. And the Pharisees had gotten wind of it by this time. Even the religious leaders are hearing about it of the Jews. And they're wanting to create turmoil here. So it says that though Jesus himself did not baptize, clearly we read that it was the disciples that were baptizing. He says he left Judea and departed to up, or departed, excuse me, again to Galilee. So he left and went up to the north. That's what we read here. And Judea is in the south. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, if you think of the map of Israel, especially even at the time as it is even today, if you think about it, it's really broken up into three sections. You have the north section, right, which would be the Galilee. You have the central section, which would have been Samaria. And you had the southern section, which would have been Judea. And Jerusalem was in that area of Judea in the south, okay? So it really was broken up in three different areas. What we're reading here is he said that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, this is not... Um, how do I put this? This is not uh, something where he's saying there's no other path or no other route to get to the north. Because clearly you could go around, which most people did. They would cross most Jews because they did um, not like the Samaritans. They felt that they were the term half-breeds because of going all the way back to Assyria in 721 during the invasion. What they did is they took, during the Assyrian invasion, they took the Jews that were in the north of that land and they dispersed them. And that was part of what Assyria would do. And then they would import other um, women and men into that area so that they would intermarry and basically create a whole new line. As you remember, that was against God's design and direction in that capacity. It was God, you know, Jews were to marry the Jews that way, um, and they were to be a witness to the surrounding nations. So what had happened here is because of this, when they thought back, there was such a hatred, such a, a, a almost a bias, a, a persecution. Um, I don't even know where to begin the, to stop with the words, but it was a hatred for the Sumerians because they didn't consider them truly Jewish men or women. They considered them kind of like a half-breed, some amalgamation, something that was of sin and just not right. So they didn't even want to go through that area, through the middle section. They didn't even want to get the dust on their feet. They would literally take what would normally be a three-day three journey to go from the south to the north. If you go right through the central region like that, through Samaria, it would only be about three days. If you were to go all the way around and take six days, they would literally double their time to get to the north as they would come from the north to south. 
just so they did not have to go through Samaria. That, that's what we're talking about with such a, an ill repute that they had. Now, the other thing that's important is to go this way, they'd have to go west or east. They would have to cross over the Jordan River. So they would cross over the Jordan. Today, modern-day Jordan as we know it, they would go through modern-day Jordan and make their way back into Israel. So when he says he needed to go through Israel, this isn't uh, geographically, though he couldn't come through. No, he's saying that his father has a plan here. And remember, he only came to do the will of his father. And there's something that he needs to do and something he needs to do in Samaria. And it's, it's the same message he has for us today. It's really, really an important message. Because I think in our hearts, sometimes we can have people, individuals, groups of people that we might think of as people we may not want to um, visit, frequent, whatever, right? And what Jesus is making clear is he wants to save everyone. And he wants all of us to be a part of it. And that is what he was giving the message where he said he needed to go through. So he came to a city of Samaria, again, part of his plan here, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. If you know what we're talking about, this area is Mount Gerizim. Okay, Gerizim, this is what we're talking about. Jesus, therefore, being wearied, we get a look into the humanity of Christ. He's tired. He's wearied. He's just traveled three days to get here, or at least a half a day, actually, day and a half, actually, because he's middle, so somewhere in there, from his journey, and he sat thus by the well. So what do we see him do? The very first thing he does is he gets there, and he sits by the well. Again, the well's 70 foot deep. What is the first thing you would do if you've been traveling a day and a half? You're probably parched or up to three days. You're tired. What would be in the middle of the day? It's noontime, right? Because it says it's the sixth hour. What's the first thing you would want to probably do? Get a drink, maybe freshen up, uh, even if you splash a little water on your face. We're talking about, uh, you know, a desert-type region here. This isn't, uh, you know, upstate New York with, you know, 30 and 40 and 50-degree weather. No, we're talking a desert, 90, 100. I mean, this is warm, maybe even hotter. And they had just been journeying on foot, carrying all the things that they would have, you know, um, whatever they had, they brought with them. And so it's about the sixth hour. They're, they're already tired, they're thirsty, and yet our Lord Jesus sits down, and it just says he sat. Now, I don't think he was just sitting there sort of nodding off. I believe he was already looking in the distance. He was looking at Samaria, knowing that he's about a mile and a half out, because he knows there's about to be a divine appointment, and he's expectant for it. He's not dreading it. He's not, he's not, oh man, I am weary. I just worked this whole week. Man, are you kidding me? Now, Lord, I gotta, he's excited. He's sitting down. He's, he's got his eyes affixed and he's watching. And I imagine a mile and a half walking on foot. Okay. It's going to take how many, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, maybe more to walk that depending on the pace that this woman is making as she's walking towards him and he's just watching as she's taking every step, knowing that God, the Father, has aligned this. And it's so amazing to me to think 30 years ago at his birth, God had aligned the timing of all of these events. God is always on time. He's always on time and he always makes time. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, again, as he was waiting for her. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, again, being a half mile, a mile, whatever it is outside of the city, God's timing's perfect. This is not rude. This is not like, hey, give me a drink. You know, what are you doing? It's not like, hey, I didn't say good morning. How are you doing? No, that's not what, this is in no way disrespectful. He's simply asking her. Because she has, and obviously, the tools. She's the barrel, something to get the water. Can I have a drink? Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Now, again, this normally would have been around the morning time. This woman would have come out. This is a busy day. She would have already been traveling. She's probably hungry, thirsty for her home. But she doesn't want to come out in the morning because she knows that the other women would be there and they would be jeering her and mocking her. 
belittling her because they would think, you know, five husbands, uh, she didn't think well of herself. They wouldn't have thought well of her, probably calling her a lot of inappropriate names. She just didn't want anything to do with that. So she goes out at noon when there's nobody there, she thinks. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me? A Sumerian woman. I think she's surprised because, again, everyone sort of disrespected her. Everyone would have thought ill of her. She was ashamed herself. That, and most men would know you wouldn't talk to a woman like that because it would sort of give a certain connotation. And she's, how is it that you being a Jew, and not to mention all of the hate that would go on between the Jews and the Samaritans, that even on top of that, she is still caught up in the cultural bias, in the cultural hate, in the cultural. And she's like, why would you even ask me? You're a Jew. How would you ask me, a Samaritan, to, to give you something? You, you hate us. You hate everything about us. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know, friends, it's simple. Jesus wants to save her. Jesus wants to forgive and restore her. Jesus wants her to see herself as he sees her. Not as a Samaritan, not as a woman that's had five husbands, promiscuous, living with a man, not married now. Not a mistake, not a woman who's blown her life, but as a daughter of God. There are no mistakes. Ladies, I know we're living in difficult days where, especially young ladies, and there's all of these things vying for your attention, trying to tell you what you need to look like, how you need to act, what you need to do to, you know, reach a boy or a man that way. I want to tell you they're all lies from the pit of hell. Your value and your worth has never been determined by your looks by your smarts, even by your character. God created you to be his daughter, to be holy and pure and beautiful in his image, his sight, to hold you close, to protect you, to be your covering. If you have a man in your life, he's to be the covering as the husband, but then who's the covering ultimately? Christ Jesus. Today, it's very common for women to sell themselves short or to have a very low self-esteem. You are a daughter of the king. It's about time you begin to believe that. It's about time you begin to understand that Jesus, if it was just you, he would have come to that cross to die just so you could be with him for eternity. That's how much he loves you. You are perfect in his eyes. I know that doesn't get said enough, but that's exactly what Jesus Christ is saying through this passage. He's speaking to this woman where everybody else wouldn't have written off, or everybody else would have thought very little of. Not Jesus. She's the apple of his eye. She's the apple of his eye. Jesus answered and said to her, now notice he doesn't turn around and deal with the 700 years. He ignores the 700 years of bigotry and bias and all of the, you know, things that go on with that. He doesn't even talk about that. He's not even interested in the cultural norms. If you knew, he says to her, if you only understood the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you li living water. This passage is really important to us. I think it gets lost in translation because many of us didn't grow up in Israel where many of us are not Jewish and got saved yet. So you may not understand the, the Jewish context of this. The idea behind what he's saying here 
in Israel, especially in those times with the well, everything came down to the quality of the water. And it's not all that far removed. As a matter of fact, we just a year ago dug a well, right? We dug a well. We went to the land that we, the Lord had purchased and we dug a well and we prayed and waited. First of all, was the well sufficient? But then the very next thing we prayed for, many of you remember that, I hope most of you remember that, was the quality of the water. Is it drinkable? Right? Is it safe to drink? Right? Because the quality of the water mattered. In Israel, there's several bodies of water that don't have an inlet or outlet, and we would refer to those sort of as ponds. Maybe that's the word we would use for stagnant body of water. It's not healthy to drink that because the bacteria and everything that, that grows there, because it's not moving, it's stagnant. It's not good. He, he's describing here a quality of this water. He says a living water, a water that's moving and flowing like a fountain. This is healthy water, kind of like a water from a river that's flowing like that. That's what he's talking about here. The Jewish mind would understand. He's talking about quality. Quality of the water, purity, a quality of water that can't be found anywhere else. And that's what he's drawing her to in so many words. He would have given you living water, a quality of water you've never had. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. What is she looking at still? And in fairness, we would be as well. She, he's speaking of certainly the spiritual application of that living water, right? Eternal life, being born again. But she's really focused on the physical, isn't she? The here and now. Sir, how can you reach down 70 feet and pull water out of that? Well, you don't, you're ill-equipped. You don't have anything on you that you could even do that with. What is she still looking at? And oh, by the way, she'd gotten pretty good at that after five husbands. She can look on the exterior. She could judge people on the exterior. She could judge men on the exterior. Maybe their wealth or their capacity to provide for her or not provide for her. She'd gotten really good at that. She'd gotten really good at that. But what Jesus Christ is talking about, you can't see with human eyes. She's still dealing in the physical realm. You have nothing to draw with. That's, she's looking on the outside. You're, you're ill-prepared. You're ill-equipped. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And certainly the answer is yes. Who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. She's still talking about what? The quality of the water in that well. She's still talking about the physical because again to the Jewish mind, it's all about the quality. And that's good because Jesus is going to talk about the quality here. She knows men. She's going to understand what she needs that no human can give her. The quality that she wants, the quality that every single human being desires cannot be gotten through another human being. That quality that we're born desiring, you can't get that from another man or another woman. That only comes through God alone. He's the only one that can truly satisfy the soul. He's the only one that can satisfy the soul. The physical can't satisfy this, the spiritual need of the thirst of humanity. You know, I remember when Pastor Steve was teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. He talked about Havel. Do you remember that? Uh, H, 1892. Havel. Vapor. The translation of that word esteem, something that you have but gone. Everything in this physical realm is like that. It's Havel. It's what Solomon said. He had all the wealth you could ever want, all the wisdom, all of the women. Okay, guys, men, all of the women. Let's just get it out there. All of the things in the physical realm that you could ever desire and want, Solomon had. 
And to him, he realized that the physical was nothing more than haval, vapor. It was here one moment, gone the next. It was not something that was concrete, not something that was going to continue to feed you or fulfill you or sustain you or meet that need that you desire because what you really need and desire can only be filled spiritually from that living water that comes from Jesus Christ. And that's what this is talking about. Now, I want us to notice as we begin in verse 13 here, it's important. Please notice that because she doesn't respond and she's still talking about the physical, Jesus doesn't turn around and walk away. He doesn't turn around and be like, ah, she's not getting it. I'm, I'm done. No, what is he going to do? What a good bridegroom will do. He'll pursue the bride. He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. He'll pursue the bride. Ladies, be honest with me. Do you not desire to be pursued? Knowing that the person who loves you, who says that they love you that way, is willing to come after you, even if you blow it, even if you get it right, even if it's a good day, a bad day. You're, he doesn't go, well, I'm done with this. What is that? Now, ladies, since you were little girls, you've, you've dreamed of your prince charming. The man that will come and sweep you off your feet. Your daddy was that man in your eyes for many of you, not everyone. Your daddy was that man until you were of age and you realized daddy's no longer that man, that the Lord may be bringing another godly man into your life. And what if that godly man went, well, really nice to meet you. I'll, I'll see you in 20 years. Good, you know, good luck. You, what? I, I thought you were the guy. You're not the guy. But you want someone that's going to pursue you. Not in a weird way. All right, let's be clear here. Right, I got, and it's terrible I even have to say that in the days we're living. You know what I mean? I really have to say that anymore because uh, the carnality of man. I'm talking about a pure, holy motivation of courtship and desiring to want to be together, to building up and encouraging. Man, that's what the ladies that God has entrusted us desire to be poured into to be loved, to be cared for, to be protected, to be desired. He doesn't walk away. It doesn't matter if she got it or not. He's going to pursue her. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, he's making a delineation, will thirst again. I wonder if he was pointing to himself. This water. He's he, he, not in this particular case, this water, like the water of the well, but then he's going to point to himself when he talks about the living water, the fountain of water. I mean, he's pointing to the water in the well, excuse me, because it's temporal at this point. He says, anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, and that's what I mean, pointing to himself, this quality water will never thirst again. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water. Please notice that the pronoun even changed. So this isn't something that just ladies, he switches the pronoun to he or him as well. So men and women, we all desire this living water. He says it'll become in him a fountain of water springing into everlasting life because spiritual birth the spiritual birth, friends, it satisfies forever. Compared to anything in this physical realm, you know, the, we, we read in passages like, you know, raw, rust, rot, moth, decay. All of this is going to burn. But the spiritual water that's brewing up a fountain inside of us, that's never going to end. It's only going to get greater. The best is yet to come in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. She, she now hears about it. She's still a little bit in the physical realm because she says, Man, that would be great if I don't have to come out here every day at noon. That's where she's at. She's like, This would be great because I don't want to come out here every day at noon. This is a lot of work. 
I'll take that water. You, you have some kind of, you know, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's just amazing. Sounds amazing, but, but still thinking of the physical. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Why does it, it almost seems like he takes a section and goes off to the right here. What does that have to do with anything? Oh, it has to do with everything. Do you know why? Because right now he's going to be, he's inviting her into basically being born again, receiving him, seeing he's Messiah and believing upon him. But he knows her heart. He knows the way humans think that if this happens without everything being full out, because after all, at this point, what is she trying to do? Coming at noon, we've already sort of talked about it. She's not coming at the time all the other women gather, all the other people. She's trying to what? She's trying to hide. She's trying to keep all of this very low key. She doesn't want anybody to know she's had five husbands, although she lived in a village. Everybody's going to know that was in that area around her. She wants everyone to understand that she's got it together, that she's fine. I know none of you ladies ever do that. And the reality is, is you never had to. We never had to do that, any of us. Pretend, play the actor, play the hypocrite. That's what that word means, hypocrite. It truly means an actor, one that puts a face on. No, he's going to bring this out so that he's going to let her know that he's fully aware of all of her past since the moment he counted every head on her, hair on her head before she was even born, when he knit her into her mother's womb, which is why there's no child that's ever a mistake. Because God placed that child in their mother's womb. And he's going to let her know that in spite of all the wrong and all the things that she's done, in the way that she thinks so very little of herself, in the ways that she can point out all the things that she just blew it and how she just has now become this woman of ill repute, that in spite of all of that, Jesus is going to save her and he's going to remove all of that from her life, all of that from her account and everything's going to be made new. He wants her to know that. He doesn't want her to wonder about that the rest of her life. He wants her to know you're a new creation and you are beautiful because you're mine. I love you. That's what he's whispering to all of us. I love you. So, he says, go call your husband and come here. He, he draws her to the one probably area of dissatisfaction in her life. She wants her to have the spiritual understanding and security. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. At this point, she's right. She's settled. To such a low, not even believing that she deserved something more. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. Do you realize at that time, I mean, we're not talking about today. In the culture where it's, you know, it's just gone rampant. But sexual sin and things that are going on. We're, we're talking about in a time, th th this didn't happen. This was incredibly scandalous incredibly scandalous. This is even unheard of at this time. Everybody that would have heard this would have gasped. What? Five? It, you might as well have said 900. It would have been that same kind of... You're an immoral woman. And the one whom you now have is not your husband and that you spoke truly. You see, Jesus knows everything, 100%. This isn't cruel. I know this might be cruel if we look at this. Somebody might say, well, that's cruel. He's calling this out. But this isn't meant to be cruel. This is meant to be transparent, right? To not cover up the need. 
He wants to know he's able to save her, redeem her, restore her. And the same thing he wants to do with all of us today. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How else could you know these things? Our father worshiped on this mountain, right? Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine, Mount Gerizim. It was where Moses had commanded, God had commanded, is where Moses had commanded that the blessings would be, you know, shouted from was Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that this, that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now, I know this seems like, what is going on? Did she just, remember I said there's multiple things happening in this passage? She just said she perceived he was what? A prophet. She has some questions. She has some questions. Okay, you're a prophet. How do you know that? So let me ask you a question. This has been going on for 700 years. By the time she's alive, at least through the intertestamental period, at least 400 plus years. So I got to ask you a question. There's been this long thing that's been going on between the, the Jewish people and the Samaritans and the hate because we worship here and we don't go down to Judea or Jerusalem to worship at the temple. She says, I'd like to ask you about that. Again, there's so much going on in this passage. Is it, is it a place where one ought to worship, right? It, it's not the subject. It's not a subject change necessarily, but it's because she recognized if you met God right before you, Jesus, and he was standing right before you, and he said, hi, how are you doing today? Um, would you like to ask me a question? I mean, how many of us would... Okay, can we talk about the Trinity? How's that work? The triune God? Can, can you help me with, you know, we'd probably go to some theology. How is it that you saved everybody? Your design was to save everyone, and yet at the same time you've given free will. And how does that work when people, you know, we start going to all these kind of theological questions. She's having that experience at this moment. She recognizes he's a problem. Whoa, so I'm going to get this one in there. I get this one in there. And he gives her an answer. Uh, he does the same thing with you and I, with a pure motive and a right heart. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you being Samaritans, what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation, in other words, the Jews have it, is of the Jews. The Jew, in other words, the Jews have it in this right regard. They were commanded by God to worship in Jerusalem at the temple, the temple that uh, God uh, had Solomon build, gave the design to David, but because of the blood on David's hands, he was unable to do that. He says, this is where you're to worship. Uh, Jeroboam ran into this. If you were here Wednesday, uh, Eric was sharing on Wednesday in Amos, and he went back into the Old Testament. He was talking about how and where some of this sin began. And Jeroboam, if you remember, he desired instead of calf worship, and he did it in the northern area because he was insecure and didn't want uh, those Jewish men and women traveling down to the south to worship in temple. But that's what God had commanded. This is an important item here because sometimes I think people we believe we can come and worship God any old way we want. I think if we're being honest. We sometimes think that, well, God will understand or I, I'm doing it because this is the way I want to do it. Uh, it's very clear. No, God is very clear on that. There is a right and a wrong way to worship the Lord. And we need to understand that because just because he was silent, he didn't turn around and wipe out all the Samaritans because they continued to worship on Mount Gerizim, did he? No, they're still alive. She's still there. So they could have, because of silence, taken that as what? Affirmation that what they were doing was okay. But in fact, it wasn't, was it? Because Jesus just dealt with it right here, didn't he? We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, they're on the right side in this regard. You should be traveling down to Jerusalem. You should be worshiping in temple at that time. Why do I say that changes now? Well, and I will say that because if you hold your finger here, what did John chapter 2 verse 21 say? Jesus Christ became our temple, didn't he? Under the new covenant, 
look at John chapter 2, verse 21. We read it. But he says he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. Jesus has become that temple. This is where the Jews err today. We, and now Jesus, at once he ascended into heaven, where does he now come and dwell? In our hearts, right? We have now become the temple of God. But while Jesus was physically here before he ascended, he had become the, the temple. That was the shift that was changing from the religion and the old covenant that they were to worship at temple that way, the Jewish people. We can, we can see this, but let me read this. Is, but the hour is coming, and now when true worshipers, so not the worshipers of the Samaritans or the Jews, because neither one of those worship were pleasing to God, right? The sacrifices of bull and goats, Hebrews, right? Didn't satisfy our Lord. But the hour is coming, and now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, let's look at what this means, to worship in spirit. Also, where is the temple of God today? Hold your finger here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, this is where it's important. This is why we all have to be born again. This is why a Jewish man or woman or a Hindu man or woman or a Muslim man or woman or any other religion, a Mormon man or woman, cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ. Do you not know, verse 16 in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians... Paul saying this to the church at Corinth. He says, do you not know? Almost implying they should understand this. That you, and that word you in the Greek is plural. Are the temple of God? And that the spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that, Corinth? Do you not know that, church? Do you not understand that the spirit of God dwells in you now? If you're a born again believer, he's speaking to the church. It's not all the context of chapter 3, if you were reading the whole thing, we don't have time this morning because we're already a little bit over our time, would have been in context um, human leadership. That was what was being questioned. Apollos, who's, a, you know, that was what was being uh, questioned in chapter 3, the idea about loyalty to other human leadership. It, it really is loyalty to Jesus Christ. And that, that's what Paul is, is making the, the point here, but that's why he's drawing it in verse 16 under that same context. Do you not know that you, plural, are the temple of the God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you or which temple are you, are you of? Right? So he's, he's drawing us to obviously this new covenant and the, the, the idea, but that's why we're not under the law. That's not why we're under any ceremonial practices. That's why we don't have to wear... Uh, you know, certain things. We don't have to eat certain ways. We don't have to, there is no law upon us. When we do that, we heap a law upon us, he actually tells us in scripture. It's actually, in some ways, a curse, not a blessing. We're not actually being more holy. It's very alarming when we see an attempt, a striving of man to be more holy apart from God in his sanctification or the work of sanctification. By definition, that becomes a religion, no different than Judaism or any other religion at that point with their 613 laws added on to, right? You get where I'm going with this. And the idea is he's, he's beautiful. He's, he's made it so simple that all can come to him, that all can receive, that all can partake. And he makes it lovely. Turn, turn in your Bibles, since we're already here, First Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 19 with me, please. Again, we read it. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? He makes it clear that we're not even our own anymore, that we've been blood-bought. And that the war that's waging between our flesh and spirit, our spirit is alive and well in us. God's spirit is alive and well in us. And then I'll, I'll draw us to one other passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, in your Bibles, please, if you'll turn there. First Peter 2, 15 tells us, Verse 
You know what? Sorry, First Peter 2, 5. I'm looking at that. I'm like, that's not the passage I want. <laughs> look, look at First Peter chapter 2, please. Verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Notice it said spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. He's not interested in the physical. God is all about the spiritual. That's why we must worship him in spirit and truth. And that's what he says, there's coming a time. And that time is now. When worshipers will truly worship God in spirit and truth. And we won't be dividing over these, you know, Jesus plus something and what we eat and what we look like and all these other things that are divisive. Jesus Christ is a unifier. He's the greatest unifier. So, he goes on to say, God is spirit in verse 24. And those who worship him, the musicians can come forward must worship him in spirit and truth. The idea here is the obedience that's required, spirit and truth. How do we know that? Because John 14, 23, you don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there quickly for you. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him and make our home with him. That's God's desire and design here. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She's starting to connect dots, isn't she? Who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Can I just point out one other thing with our, with our limited time here? <laughs> did she know that Messiah was coming? She did, didn't she? She says, I know that Messiah is coming. But what did she do? with that knowledge and information? How did it Im impact her life? What was the evidence of that? Well, it looks like she lived her life in self-pleasure, right? The point is, is the choice. We all believe, if we're born again believers in Christ, we know Jesus Christ is coming soon. He said he's coming again. But we have to make that same choice that woman made. How are we going to live our lives knowing that these are the last days? Are we going to be seeking the self and the pleasures of this life? Or are we going to be looking to the eternal God and the kingdom of God and the things that are to come? Where are you putting your resources? Time, money, energy? What's a successful life look like to you? Is it one that's pleasing and obedient to God? Or is it one that results in a comfortable existence? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning and the end. Jesus came to set you and I free. He came to not enslave us in the cares of this life. As Paul says, a good soldier can't be caught up in the cares of the lives of the things going on around him. He's not fit for service. I'm paraphrasing. But he's to focus on the mission. Friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're blood-bought. Our mission as citizens of heaven is to bring the gospel to the Samarias in our lives, to the people of Samarias in our lives, to those people that everybody else would reject or everybody else would say, no, they're not, or no, this, or the neighborhood looks like this, or the people look like that, or who knows what. And the reality is, is Jesus said, I need to go through Samaria. I'm not to go around it. And that's the same thing for you and I. Amen? Let's stand and we'll worship our Lord and Savior.
reflect what David said. Who are we that you be mindful of us? And God, you give us an answer. Jesus, our King, a mighty King worthy of everything, who lead the 99 just for the one. Lord, thank you. And let us remember that our bodies are yours. use our temples now to worship you. Humbly ask and pray, Lord, that you would pour out your gifts upon us liberally here this morning. Lord, we do pray you'd create those divine appointments, Lord. Opportunities to tell people who you are, your love, your forgiveness. Lord, your desire to save and save now. And Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that wants to give their life to you that has not made a decision, Lord, to do that, I pray, Lord, draw them. Draw them here now, Lord Jesus. Draw them to the place of just calling upon you and asking you to be their Lord and Savior. 
Lord, I pray save now. If somebody's hearing this on the radio, Lord, if somebody's hearing this online, and again, Lord, please save now, Jesus. Father, for the rest and those that need prayer, God, I pray you would draw them up and that the pastors, would we would be able to pray for them, Lord. Intercede for our brothers and sisters. Come together as one body in your unity, Jesus Christ, proclaiming your perfect truth in love with your spirit, Lord, without compromise. We ask and we pray this according to your will, Lord, as we read in Scripture. In your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and God's people pray. Amen. God bless you all. I love you and have a beautiful week. If you need prayer, come up. The pastors will be in front. We're here to serve you.